Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at Burrow.com Acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Girl, real talk. This whole, it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. This is Thresholds, a series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new. And the way that experience changed everything they made afterward. I'm Jordan Kistner. This is Thresholds. Something to note about this season of Thresholds is that all of the audio recordings you're going to hear were made in people's homes, often on their cell phones, in order to keep us all socially distant. And what that means is that occasionally you'll hear a slightly diminished sound quality or random life things happening in the background, a car backfiring, a phone ringing, a dog walking into the room, my dog walking into the room. 
Um, and we hope that you will be generous and bear with us on that. Okay, I think I want to start introducing Kate Zambrino by just reading a line from her most recent book, which is her novel, Drifts, that came out in May. Near the end of the book, she writes, Lately, I have been thinking of the relationship of my body to time, how time moves this summer so slowly and quickly, how my growing body keeps measure. The character she's writing about, her protagonist in this moment, is a writer who is struggling to finish a book project and to turn it in. And she's also pregnant. And she's contemplating in the heat of summer the way that writing is a way of moving through time for the writer and the artist. And that also the body is this vessel and vehicle that moves through time and that time becomes so much more apparent on it when it's pregnant, when there is a deadline impending for the body in the way that there's a deadline impending for the writer. Um, and I'm just kind of obsessed with this. It, it, it holds a lot of the, the, the themes and the ideas that feel really central to Kate Zambrino's work. She is a writer of fragments, a writer of collage, a writer of novels and essays and attempts. Um, formally speaking, she's the author of many books, um, the novel Green Girl, the collage work Heroines, Screen Tests, The Book of Mutter, Appendix Project, and then most recently this novel Drifts. I've been so inspired by her work over time. And so I was really excited to talk to her today, particularly because there's a funny parallel between the plot of Drifts, especially the second half, and Kate's current circumstances. It is the summer. It is hot outside. She is a writer on deadline. And she is eight and a half months pregnant. And so when I wrote to her to ask if she would come on thresholds, she suggested that um, like the like the narrator in Drifts, she'd been doing a lot of thinking about late-stage pregnancy as a threshold and the body as a kind of cusp or portal for writing, but also for humanity. Um, I was thrilled to get to talk to her about that. It's strange that... Um, the second part of Drifts deals so much with me being in late pregnancy, and I am again in late pregnancy. I'm supposed to go into labor in a couple weeks. Um, and I think that's been the most potent threshold, like physical and like spiritual and emotional threshold I've ever experienced, just in terms of the limits of the body, probably the closest I've ever been to death. I think, you know, pregnancy, they don't really talk about it, but it's a big mortality event. <laughs> you know, it really, you know, in terms of like how sociologists measure mortality events, which is everything we're talking about now with what's going on with the pandemic, like pregnancies, like the day of the day of labor is a pretty big you know, event. Um, you mean in the sense that there is a a likelihood of mortality yes. in delivering a bit. Okay. Yeah. 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 And of course, you know, like thankfully there's more conversation now how that's related to race and class. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very 
powerful boundary crossing experience going into labor that can take many weeks that has no endpoint really like if there's no real real beginning point there's no real endpoint and the whole time you are told to prepare your body for severe pain and the more i mean i don't know if there's many experiences in life where you're told the more pain you're experiencing the better like like and you're just supposed to do it privately for like the great majority of it even if it can go on for weeks and weeks labor you mean yeah, I mean, your body warms up for labor for weeks and weeks. Um, you start to feel off and strange, and these are all good signs. You stop sleeping. You're, you start acting more like an animal. Like, you know, you're expected to nest or feel strange or have stranger dreams. And it goes on for a while before you actually, unless you have a um, a specific day where you know it's going to happen, whether you're induced or you have surgery, it's it's a pretty um, liminal period. And I don't think I realized that. Um, and now I'm kind of going through it again. And I'm really struck um, what an intense philosophical experience it is. You know, and I think I've also been reading a lot about, you know, illness, like Sontag on illness or Virginia Woolf on illness, I'm trying to write this little study of Hervé Gebert before I go under, like go into go go through the other way, this passage into labor and having another baby. And it's interesting this like Sontag writes that illness is an onerous citizenship of the night. But I think that late pregnancy period is like that as well. It resembles the borderlessness in some ways of illness. Do you feel like you have a clear sense of when, what entering it feels like? I guess right now, do you feel like you know when you've crossed from pregnancy into this sort of pre-labor strange period? I feel like I'm in it now and I'm not supposed to, my due date isn't for a, a month probably which is what happened last time, which I wrote about in Drifts. I also wrote about it in the Appendix Project in one of my appendix lectures. And it was, it's strange. It's weird. There's this moment in Roland Barthes' lectures on the neutral where he brings up pregnancy and it really surprises me because I never think of Roland Barthes thinking about pregnancy. But he mentions that grief is this temporary period where people let people kind of go away from capitalism and productivity. And he also mentions pregnancy as this period. But I've noticed that most people just are still, I get a lot of like emails from people saying like, how are you? But no one knows. It's a very private, strange, um, for me at least, experience of like anxiety and like just being solely a body and then also, like, yeah, dealing with discomfort constantly. It's very strange. Hmm. In To the Friend Who Did Not Save My Life, Irving Gebera, he writes about I'm dying of AIDS. And he writes about how his actuary table is the same as his elderly aunts, who he wrote about and photographed and loved quite a lot. Um, and I thought it's, it's such an interesting way of thinking about severe illness, which, of course, pregnancy is not an illness. 
Um, it's supposed to be kind of one of the most like natural organic things. Well, I guess illnesses as well, but it is interesting. I do think that late pregnancy prepares you for being quite old. So you become quite old, you know, like people get diabetes, they get all of these arthritis, they get all these things they're going to get later in life. And then I think you're also like incredibly young. So it's this period of time where I go back to my childhood I'm thinking about my childhood quite a lot. I'm thinking about people who are not alive anymore. It's like a portal. And then I'm also, I feel just incredibly ancient. I feel very old. <laughs> and it's funny because I've been mostly pregnant under quarantine for this whole pregnancy. And so I've had much. And then even when I was teaching and I was pregnant, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant, which is you know, typical like the first four months. So I haven't had that overdetermined experience of being a body in the subway or a body walking down the street. I mean, the other day I was walking down the street and I was very slow and a man hollered at me and I just flipped him off and that felt good. But I haven't had that experience in a while because of quarantine. It felt good. I think in Driss, I write a lot about you know, this, well, it was also the, the election and Trump and I was commuting through Grand Central Station and I felt like my body felt like a vector for a lot of intense feelings by, um, some of the like men in my orbit in public space. Like I had a lot of really strange encounters. Um, and I think I felt really like this angry, large thing commuting but I don't have that now. So I'm mostly just incredibly interior. This pregnancy is incredibly private. And so I've had, I guess, less of that overdetermined experience, except most of the time, I think people, what, what really struck me about pregnancy, and this is, pregnancy is very different than having a child. It's a completely different thing. And labor is even a different thing, is that people have a very predetermined narrative about it. And it's very sentimental and like nice and happy. When I actually think like pregnancy and labor is one of the goriest things, like it's incredibly, it's incredibly grotesque. And um, there's all this like language around a good birth. You're supposed to like only be positive there's a lot of meditation tapes and books, and I found myself unable to access any of those narratives. Like, I cannot <laughs> listen to a meditation tape where I'm supposed to repeat to myself, like, the baby knows what to do. My birth will be a good birth. <laughs> I can't do it. I just, it's just such this preconceived um, way of thinking. And I think actually, you know, it's a very intimate scary, grotesque crossing over that, you know, it's, it's an incredibly precarious thing. And what really surprised me, and I don't really write about my labor and dress because I kind of felt that would take over the entire book. And I also think a birth experience is not really linear. It's something that comes out later, I guess, more like trauma. Um, but I was really surprised how I wasn't supposed to have any narrative afterwards. I wasn't supposed to have an experience or narrative. No one wants to hear someone talk about having a difficult birth 
or pregnancy really? being difficult. No one. I mean, other people who have experienced do and they gather and like talk to each other about it because it becomes this like thing that you survived or thing that, I mean, it's also, if you're having a hospital birth, it's an, an experience with this vast medical bureaucracy, which anyone who's had you know, surgery or these extreme experiences can also identify with. But it's, yeah, it's a very bewildering, it's an incredibly patronizing experience giving birth in a hospital. Um, you're often dismissed quite a lot in terms of pain, which is what is so linked to mortality. So yeah, it's, it's you know, it is this like, maybe beautiful experience, pregnancy and all that, but it's also incredibly um, alienating, which I think for me, I find incredibly evocative and rich as a writer. Like these sort of narratives we're supposed to paper over and not talk about that get erased. And yeah, they get erased because people just really want to see the cute baby. <laughs> they really don't want to know about your body, you know? And I think I think some people who first give birth are horrified, like, wait, this happens and you just get left alone and you have to deal with a baby and like you don't like the your health insurance doesn't pay for you to see a doctor for six weeks afterwards yeah and your body's just turned itself inside out and there's a new human in the mix it's I can imagine I can only imagine having not experienced it but it doesn't sound to me like any kind of an idyllic situation it sounds like intense and vital and traumatizing incredibly all those things <laughs> yeah. and i and and i was pregnant and very dumb my first pregnancy and then after i gave birth all these peers and people who are mothers were like oh yeah it's like you're in a fucking car accident like you're in a car crash you have to take care of yourself and you have to take care of someone else like why did no one tell me this but no one wants to scare you yeah which i suppose is is fine is fine it's good to not want to scare people who are on a track that they, at, at a certain point, can't easily get off of. You can't of, get right? out of. <laughs> you can't get out of. That's the thing get about out of the it. Car. I remember yeah. the writer, um, Tamara Faith Berger, when I was pregnant and I was very ambivalent about it. And I think a lot of Drifts is about this ambivalent experience with pregnancy. She said, and this is a cliche, but it was very helpful. She said, the only way out is through. You can't back up. I mean, you can at a certain point, but afterwards you can't. Right. That's it. Right. And it's it's interesting. I've had friends go through the experience of pregnancy and labor and childbirth and be trying to find language as they're going for how hard it is and trying to um, find ways to talk about what's happening to them because the language available doesn't seem to be working doesn't seem to describe what's happening yeah it's often um, very cliche and it's, it's 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 interesting this whole language like if you're experiencing pain it's good and like it's you're supposed to experience it privately and I think that for me was I felt very interconnected to other women people who have been through birth and I felt overconnected to them and I don't think I've ever experienced that before. And I think there was some part of me, and I think Drift deals with that ambivalence. It's like an ambivalence about gender and the body and even, you know, like one's fertility or, re, you know, re, 
reproductiveness. I already had, I had always kind of ignored that aspect of myself and didn't want to consider myself in any sort of community, however fractured, right? I always thought that I I had transcendence over my body. And I think it was a very um, like humbling and alienating, but also in some ways, beautiful experience. Like the fact that I've had conversations with people who are pregnant while I'm pregnant that I never would have had a conversation with. I mean, you still have those experiences of intimacy that are very kind of strange and can be cliched and can be overdetermined, but it can also be incredibly beautiful and generative. So much of drifts and of much of your work is about reaching out for certain kinds of writerly and artistic community. Mm -hmm. So much of drifts is about um, excavating writers from history, being in conversation with writers via their text, and then being in conversation with living friend writers via email and the, the tension or the ebbing and flowing of that kind of community that seems to be devised and um, not devised, but strived for in some way. Um, And yet the, that is such a, that's a, that's an intellectual community or an artistic community Mm -hmm. as opposed to an embodied community necessarily, or a community built around an experience of embodiedness. Which changed because so many of my friends who are writers were also mothers and were mothers for a while. And I don't think you need to be a parent to empathize with the labor of childcare, but I think I just wasn't empathetic to it. I think that I was, when I think back to, you know, my conversations I've had with friends who are mothers who now I have other conversations with about like labor and dailiness and um, the impossibility of time and space, I realize how I kind of ignored huge aspects of their lives right, and the labor of their lives while only focusing on writing. And there, it can be beautiful to just have conversations about writing, but I think the act of caretaking, whether it's for a, a parent like some of my friends right now or for someone else or for an animal or for yourself if you're ill, like that is a huge part of life that is part of friendship to talk about. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that my friendships that were based on being writers have gotten richer since I've become more interested in the questions of labor and dailiness that I think I was incredibly privileged before that I didn't, I just had huge amounts of time every day that I didn't do anything with. There is some part of drifts. I don't know if I could even read it now, the first part. I mean, I'm so happy I have that solitude. I don't think it's only a privilege to have that solitude. People sacrifice to have the solitude of being an artist like that. And it is a, you know, it's a beautiful sacrifice, but it's, it also feels like a completely different person that I could never be again. I will never have solitude like that again. (laughs) 
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition. I think that the question of labor and precarity has become much more interesting to me as my life has become more solidified as like kind of a permanent adjunct professor and and a writer um, who is you know a writer is almost always extremely adjunct to the institution of publishing where it's like kind of a job but kind of not a job um, and then yeah I think as a parent um, there's this passage I'm working on in the Geber study where the writer Bonu Kapil who is a friend of mine who writes a lot about survivor survival energy and caretaking energy. Um, she takes care of her mother. She has a teenage son. Um, but we were both responding to this interview Caesar Era did with the Paris Review where he wrote that you cannot write a novel the night before you're dying. Um, that the, a novel requires deep amounts of space and attention and Banu, in her characteristic verve and brilliance, wrote this kind of mini manifesto on her blog that then she'll never be a novelist, that a novelist is this privileged category where you have time, which is often impossible, right? To have that deep space of time and attention. And I think I, think I would have said before that heroines was a meditation on a room of one's own and the notion of having what, what does it take to be a writer and what kind of inside experience does it take to be a writer? What kind of validation does it take to be a writer? What kind of time and space is necessary? And also for others to legitimize you as a writer. Um, But I think even more so I'm aware, I think of the great privilege that I'm in now, but also how it's connected to survival energy, caretaking energy, and what does it mean when you don't have time? So I do think that time has been the kind of enduring meditation of most of my recent more essayistic works, but I think it's deepening now, my notion of time. And a notion of time that takes in others besides myself, I think, which is helpful. <laughs> like just more of an expansive, expansive notion of artists and time. And I think this period I'm in now post-drifts, I'm very interested in dying artists. Like I'm pretty interested in artists who like Hervé Gebert or David Vonerovitz, um or Derek Jarman. I'm reading Derek Jarman's diary right now. The gardening journals? Yes. I love them. So yeah, They're like modern incredible. nature. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, and it's so amazing to me. I consider it such an act of care as well as activism, 
how he's keeping this gardening journal and he's keeping this garden as he's dying, right? There, there's this such a beautiful thing that's going on there. And, and so I think I am very interested in other artists and also like artists who make art out of alienation, who make art while ha keeping all these other sorts of jobs. So I do think that, that this like next period that I'm in, I tend to be drawn to why do we write? Why are we making work? And what happens when we only have a limited amount of time left? The connection that you're making between being a parent and the way that that can constrict your time or create limitations on your time, which is definitely like t something that's written about in Drifts is this fear, this fear, this warning from other parent writers saying you will, you will never have time to write again once you have children and this connection with I mean the three artists we're talking about are like gay male artists who died of AIDS it's like yeah. a very particular kind of um find like diaristic capturing of a lack of time that's connected to anger I don't know that I um, I'm articulating that well, but there's a little bit no, of yeah. like rage at how little time they have in a lot of Guibert's writings or Germain or Vonnyerowitz, of course, of course, like there's this anger about the, the constraints of time, even as there's this expansion of beauty within time. And it's interesting to think of that in contrast to an experience of parenting and its constrictors again on time. Well, I think with, with my interest in Guibert, um, it's interesting to me. I mean, ACT UP did not like Hervé Gabert. They did not think that he was good for the cause. Like, they did not think that he was an activist writer at all, unlike Derek Jarman or David Von Arovitz. They saw him as being purely self-interested in terms of his first-person narratives, um, which I, I disagree with. But I also see his works as somehow dealing with financial need as well. You know, I mean, that's like the underscoring of how prolific he was once he was diagnosed with AIDS was he needed to pay for the extremely expensive, still incredibly expensive um, drugs. I mean, the drugs at that, that his time didn't even work like AZT and just actually made you sicker. And so I see this like financial insecurity running underneath his work like so much of the to the friend who did not save my life is a real feeling of revenge towards everyone who could have made him rich and didn't, you know, like everyone who could have helped him. Yeah. So I do think I think of the Gebert in comparison to my interest right now in like precarity and financial instability, which I don't think is linked to parenting as much as linked to like the need to justify writing through trying to find childcare, right? Like time equals money in a way that it never did before. Um, but I think for me, the parallel I'm seeing with Geber right now is more with my pregnancy. Like I literally feel like I have one month left of my life, even though I know that's not true. I know- What does that feel like? It feels, well, it feels incredibly morbid, to be honest, <laughs> it feels really morbid. And I think, you know, I think, you know, there's a lot of melancholy and despair that goes into this period where I know my life will be completely taken over 
and that I might feel like a completely different person afterwards and that I probably won't have much space to write for some time or to even think. And once I actually return back to myself, I probably won't be interested in the same things as I am now. So that does feel like there's, it's less the, I don't think you can compare someone dying of AIDS to the everyday precarity, but it's more the sense of a deadline and the right. sense of an urgency of a deadline and the sense like, like, I'm just going to finish this good bear study, even if it's terrible is what I've decided. <laughs> like, I don't care. Right. I just like <laughs> need to write it. But I'm also reckoning with why in the past decade of my life, have I been so productive? Like, why do I need to keep publishing books? And I think Gebert has always been my, the writer I've looked to because he published like, he wrote like 10 books when he found out he was sick. And also Gebert always thought he was sick. When he was in his 20s, he was sure he was dying of cancer. He's an incredibly morbid, incredibly hypochondriac writer. And when he was diagnosed with AIDS, he was almost relieved that like finally he had... That the thing he felt was happening was actually happening. Exactly. Um, right. And so, you know, I've had a, a great deal amount of health crises since I gave birth. Like I've had, you know, I've had like a, I had a, um, a minor heart attack, which they was dealt with postpartum. Um, you know, I wound up in the ER several times in the past couple of years. So it's more those like emergency experiences of the body and how much they're dismissed that I find this uncanny parallel to, but less like the activist energy of a David Vonerowitz. Although David Vonerowitz was very much a caretaker. I mean, so much of his, of the beauty of Close to the Knives and the films he made and the work he made was mourning Peter Hujar, who, I mean, Peter Hujar was his lover very briefly, but he, I mean, David Vonerowitz was his caretaker. He was his official caretaker. So he has, I think, that caretaking energy through the work as well. Right. Which itself like manifests and sort of creates a kind of love. And it's all about grief, I think. Like the ex various experiences of writing through elegy and grief. And I've, I've often wondered, like, am I so productive because my mother died young? You know, like, is there, is there some sense um, that I feel like being the age that I am now um, like, is there some sense I feel like you receive bad news and then that's it? <laughs> like, I think that's always the way I think of life. And I think that's like, I've realized that's part of the panicked energy running through my need to work on books. Do you want that to be different? Yeah, it's not a great life. <laughs> no, because I mean, you've made all these beautiful books. Like, it's a little hard to argue with whatever is whatever is creating these these books. Whenever I work on a project, at this point, for me to actually get work done, I have to kind of not take care of my body. Um, and I already feel I'm not taking care of my body because I take care of someone else. So it's not. No, it's not. I am not a good model for being a writer at all. <laughs> I think that's why I'm not asked to do like those interviews, like how to be a writer or writing tips, because I am not, not a good model for it at all. 
I mean, I don't know who is. And I feel like half the people who've ever been held up as models for how to be a writer have led incredibly extreme lives <laughs> in one way or another, you it's know? It's weird to me because as writing has become less important to me, like I consider it, I consider like being a good person or being an activist way more important than being a writer, you know? And I think that's something that I've, you know, come to terms with, but still I have this like sense of will or despair that makes me always need to work on new projects. I don't know, really know what it is. That's interesting. Will, because I don't know, I think of those things as almost in, in contradiction with each other, will and despair. Well, the painter Francis Bacon, he said to um, David Sylvester, who is his interviewer, that he will spend time in his studio doing nothing with painting and then something takes over and he says it's will or despair and he has to start painting again. And I think that has something to do with death, right? It has to do with death. It has to do with like, that's, you know, this is, will be my last, my last thing that will be this moment of subjectivity, this. God, that is so wild because I think about that all the time, particularly when I, when I found out that I was going to have a book published, I made a note to myself in my like little memos in my phone. I was on the subway home from wherever I was. And I wrote, I could die now and not disappear, which is, first of all, not at all true. Many people who have written books completely disappear as do the books. Um, but I had this feeling of like, okay, I've gotten something of my self across the transom so that it exists outside my own room. And now I have a different relationship to mortality, which is something I've been reflecting on a lot in the last, it's very, also very weird to have your first book published, like in a time of mass mortality, because there is also this question of like, okay, is this the only thing I'll ever publish for one reason or another, right? Like, is that, um, and will that be enough? And if that, if that's true, should I be like, if that were true, if I knew that would, were true, I would be writing like a mad person as opposed to going slowly or giving myself space or a sort of, I'm, I'm like very, (laughs) I'm very like confused about my sense of, about my sense of mortality and, and work. And, and I, I would be so curious to hear how, like, I want to hear all kinds of writers talk about how much they think about death when they're working. And what the relationship is of writing to death, which I think is really there. I mean, for me, it's, I think that we disappear regardless. (laughs) Right. Of course we disappear. Of course we disappear regardless. Like I, I really, I, I I really, I mean, you know, people in the publishing industry are always boost, like big boosters of the publishing industry. Right. So I'm sure they would not be happy with me saying this. I don't really think it matters at all. I mean, I really think that when you're ill or you're dying or you're in this extreme mortal experience, it doesn't matter what you've written. Like, it doesn't matter what you've published. It doesn't matter what you've written. But there is no doubt this, like, transcendental thing that happens, writing something and someone reading it, or you reading something someone has written. There's something about human communication and community that I think otherwise is 
pretty impossible to have that level of intimacy, maybe with really beautiful friendships or relationships. I mean, reading is a form of love. And so I think for me, it's like how to do this while we're living at least, right? To participate in this. Yeah. I think my sense of scarcity comes from not necessarily from the feeling of like in writing, I can become immortal because I have no illusions that such a thing would happen, but rather that when I'm writing, I feel like I am recording and manifesting aliveness. Of course. It's like a, it's a, a way of being in aliveness that I don't do in any other area of my life. And so it feels when I'm not doing that or not working on a project a little bit like I'm not being in my aliveness. And so there's, so that is maybe more what the pressure feels like, um, of, of wanting to make sure that I didn't waste any, waste any time not being like all the way alive in the way that writing can, can make you be, which then makes me think differently about what you're saying about the fear or the feeling of like morbidity about the idea that there will come this time and sometime in the next few weeks where you're going to go into labor and have a baby. Now on the other side of it, whatever you've been writing about and caring about and aliving about in your work is going to be gone and replaced maybe by other things, other... It's an extreme act of decreation, I think, giving birth. And I think that I've given myself over more to experiences of decreation when before I really was so scared of losing the eye. Like there's this line in Green Girl. I mean, I don't remember Green Girl. I don't remember writing it. And I don't even know if I wrote it, but there's this line in it. I remember <laughs> where, I, where the character says, I need I, I'm all I have. And she's terrified of death and terrified of losing that individuality. Um, and I think that I think, I think there's a real decreation that happens. And also when you become a mother, no one really sees you as a person for a while. And when you meet other people, they don't, I mean, there are so many people I interact with who have no idea I'm a writer, who are all in the world of my child. And it's, it's like, it's like a bath to me. It's really relieving sometimes not to be a person like that or a writer. Yeah, I I have to say the, <laughs> the, the violence of no, I was going to say the violence of of thinking of yourself as being decreated through labor is sort of scary, but the the idea of being able to take a break from being the I or be many things in addition to the I that you thought you were. It's dangerous if it becomes permanent. <laughs> what do you mean? Like if that's I think there is some I think the reason why there's so much a conversation now about motherhood and writing is that some people who've really wanted to be writers and experienced that aliveness through writing, it's foreclosed to them when they become mothers because they simply don't have the time. Or, And I think for me, I, I had enough of an identity as a writer before that, that I'm able to go back to it. I, I don't know what's going on in my head but for some reason this the connection between the aliveness and then sometimes the total not being in lifeness of writing feels to me like the counter gesture of also engaging with aliveness is about 
being present in the process of a different kind of creation. And I think that parenting, for me, I think sometimes I'm always beware of just like one narrative that gets taken over. I mean, being a parent can be incredibly deadening and alienating and very, very, very boring. But there's also like extreme joy and presentness to it. Maybe yeah. that's like being a writer. <laughs> Have you read the part? It's I guess it's the very beginning of Amy Fusselman's book Eight, where she talks about being. I'll send it to you. I was there she when Sarah Manguso did a reading from from Eight, and it was wonderful. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. In the beginning, in particular, she talks about the repetition and the boredom and the uh, the the robotness sometimes of what caretaking as a parent can be, and then the intense. Uh, a lot the intense um not that whatever whatever word we're going to use for the opposite of feeling like bored and robot and robot like well it's also a threshold too i've never found myself thinking more about my childhood and like my own mother than being a mother so that does seem like some sort of practice or thinking that i'm doing i like mm-hmm. the line in rivka galchin's little labors where she says since being a parent, she's thought more than ever, but she doesn't write any of it down. <laughs> so it is this very transitory and permanent activity, I think. Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kissner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kissner. We'll see you next week. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.